Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back for Globsters Part 2, The Revenge. That's right. Uh, last episode uh, was a, a fun introduction to the world of globsters. Grotesque, Lovecraftian, amorphous monstrosities that wash upon our shores and perplex onlookers. Now, last time we tended to focus on globsters that are of a, of a sort of uh, maybe you could call like the standard class globster, mm-hmm. which is something that is sort of off-white, gray, or pale pink in color, huge, blob-like in shape, maybe multi-ton, no apparent skeleton or bones, no apparent eyes, no apparent head, covered in little fine hairs or stringy fibrous substances, kind of a rubbery texture, your classic beach blob. Yeah, and as we discussed and explored in that episode – it's almost always a safe bet to go with the explanation that it's a big old piece of rotting whale blubber. In fact, right. if someone, if you're out in the world, uh, you know, in the next over the next few months, and someone says, "Hey, did you see this headline about this strange creature that washed up?" You you can just go ahead and say, "Oh yeah, that's probably whale blubber." And you have a very good chance of being correct. You can you can really feel like a Sherlock Holmes in this scenario. Yeah, you'll be right most of the time, but. We should acknowledge that there is also another – well, I don't know if it would be one class. You could say a a whole range of other classes of globsters, which are, you know, some form of mysterious dead organic matter that washes up on a beach and defies initial classification. People don't automatically know exactly what kind of animal it is. They think it might be a new species or some kind of sea monster or sea serpent. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the the globsters that are not just whale blubber or some type of whale tissue. Right. Uh, so one of the key examples that you come up with are, are are globsters that are interpreted as being a plesiosaur. Yes. This is one of the biggest classes of, of other globsters out there. The plesiosaur form, the kind of like long neck reptile with weird little paddle fins. Yeah. The Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. But the thing is you can you can just go ahead and forget about the Loch Ness Monster for a second because the Loch Ness Monster does not exist, never existed, but the plesiosaur did. And it's, uh, you know, it's 
it is it is an amazing thing. Like we should wake up every day in amazement that giant marine reptiles once ruled our seas. Yeah, well, a point of clarification. Sometimes plesiosaurs, they get lumped in with dinosaurs, weren't dinosaurs. No more than pterosaurs mm-hmm. were dinosaurs. Plesiosaurs were sea-dwelling reptiles. Right, yes. <laughs> Though I have to, I have to admit, I myself will sometimes mistakenly refer to a pterosaur as a dinosaur, mm-hmm. and my six-year-old son will correct me. They're not actually dinosaurs, Dad. They're pterosaurs. Good on him. He's <laughs> flexing those pedantic muscles early. Yes. I mean, that's just good training for adulthood. Nobody, the kind of person everybody loves most is the person <laughs> who corrects them about what kind of animal something is. Yes. Well, you know, you, you have to work on that too. That's that's the story of uh, of, of raising a, a child, right? <laughs> right. Um, the, the difficult part is, yeah, to, to convincing them that there is a time and a place to correct people on this, mm-hmm. on this sort of thing. And in <laughs> Granted, some adults never learn that lesson. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, to, to come back to, to Nessie, though, it is important to acknowledge Nessie because Nessie is a great example of how we have this well-worn cryptid trope uh, to, to turn to when we find a strange creature that in some way resembles a prehistoric marine lizard. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it, it is a great form to turn to because for starters, nothing alive today really looks like a plesiosaur. In the same way that nothing to alive today really looks like, say, a sauropod mm-hmm. or any number of prehistoric animal forms. I mean, nothing, I mean, nothing outside of, a, you know, a chicken looks like a T-Rex, but, you know, certainly not at that scale. But, but at the same time, these forms are famous and, and if certain animals decay in just the right way, underlying, you know, bones or ligaments uh, may create the illusion of a long neck and a small head emerging from a bulky torso. Yeah. So what happens is on several different occasions, basking sharks have been misidentified as plesiosaurs. Uh, this due to their prominent snouts or noses, which is the namesake, the namesake of their genus, Ceterhinus uh, ketos, which is marine monster in Greek plus rhinos meaning nose. And with it, so with the underlying basking mouth rotted away because these are big, uh, you know, uh, filter feeders. Uh, it looks like, the, the remnants look like a small head on a long neck. One of the most prominent examples of this that you still see everywhere, you go to any cryptozoological website yeah. and they will have this picture, uh, is uh, this, uh, this, this thing that was uh, pulled up by a Japanese fishing trawler, the Zuyo Maru in 1977. And again, this picture still makes the round, sometimes as, as part of a creepypasta. I've, even, I've seen it used yeah. in that way. And it is an unsettling image. It looks like there is this long-necked, small-headed creature with like two or at least two, probably like four limbs trailing off of it, some sort of underlying structure. Uh, you know, it could be a skeleton. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to look at that and think, oh, my goodness, that is, that's, that's Nessie. That's, that's a plesiosaur. Right. But it's not. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the books we were looking at for this was uh, Abominable Science, Origins of the Yeti, uh, Nessie, and more uh, by Daniel Loxton and Donald R. Prothero. And it provides an excellent illustration of how this sort of thing could occur, exactly like how the flesh would rot away mm-hmm. to create this false impression of a plesiosaur. Uh, it's on page 214 in the Kindle edition. Yeah, there's actually a uh... – there, there's a great – it's a reversal of the shrink wrapping thing, mm-hmm. you know, that we uh, we talked about when we did the episode with Katie Golden of Creature Feature. On, mm-hmm. You know, th- this idea that sometimes when paleo artists are trying to figure out how to draw what a dinosaur looks like, they essentially just like – wrap the skin as tightly around the bones as possible. And so we end up with a dinosaur or any kind of extinct animal that looks like a very like slim, uh, a very slim, slender interpretation of what the bones were, kind of like the bones have been shrink wrapped by the skin. But in fact, many animals are, they've got all kinds of tissues that are not fossilized, don't show up in the bones. So maybe we should be imagining dinosaurs as as plumper, fatter, more uh, more fluffy creatures. And uh, this is like the opposite of that procedure where we pull up the bones and then you're or actually maybe it's the same thing you're imagining a shrink-wrapped version of what these uh, cartilaginous remains are 
from the basking shark. And if you were to do the shrink-wrapped version of the cartilaginous remains, they look it would look kind of like a plesiosaur. Exactly. Uh, you know, when, when alive, uh, the head of a basking shark is something like five feet across, mm-hmm. but its skeleton is made of cartilage and those huge jaws that it have, they quickly rot away. And it leaves behind what looks like a small skull at the end of a long spine. Uh, another example of this, ex- this exact same situation occurred in 1808 with the, the Stronze beast. Yeah, this is, a, this is a classic globster. Yeah, washed ashore on the island of Stronze in the Orkney Islands. Scottish anatomist John Barclay thought that uh, it was surely the remains of a sea serpent. And it caused quite a stir at the time, especially in the media. Uh, though uh, anonymist uh, Sir Everett Home, uh, who was, I believe, based in London at the, at the time, he dismissed it um, almost immediately, saying, that's a decaying basking shark. Uh, and others backed him up on this. But still, there were other people who jumped to Barclay's defense, uh, saying that there, this was clearly the remains of a long-necked beast with three pairs of paws or wings, along with hair-like bristles down its back. Mm-hmm. Now, one place I have frequently seen claims of uh, people trying to validate the existence of plesiosaur remains mm-hmm. uh, f- found uh, coming out of the ocean is among uh, young Earth creationists. Who, oh, really? Who, mm-hmm. Well, I guess they sometimes seem keen on the idea that there are still dinosaurs out there or there are still animals that we now know to be ancient extinct animals. Uh, you know, th- because they've compressed the timeline of Earth history to a tiny fraction of what it really is, I think they're motivated to think that things that we think have been extinct for millions of years are actually still somewhere in a jungle or somewhere in the deep ocean. Yeah, if your agenda is to take uh, geological time and fit it within the time frame of human language, then that's probably a solid step to make. But, but the thing is, even people without that agenda in mind, I mean, they still can fall into this uh, – under the sway of the plesiosaur interpretation. I mean, that – there were a couple – at least a couple of scientists in Japan who supported the plesiosaur the plesiosaur interpretation of that, uh, that Zuyomaro uh, case from 1977, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of baffling. But, uh, but I guess – who wouldn't want to believe? It comes back to the whole, uh, you know, situation of finding either uh, a dead uh, Sasquatch or a dead chimpanzee in your backyard. One of them is far more likely, but one is amazing. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a plesiosaur molder. Like, I, I would love to believe that. That, oh, would, yeah. that would be wonderful if we discovered that some kind of uh, branch of plesiosaurs had survived into the modern age. At this point, you know, it, it seems kind of unlikely, but, who, you know, the ocean's big. Who knows? It's just that these cases are, are not actually good evidence of that. So I still maintain that there's far less excuse for going with the plesiosaur uh, explanation today or even in 1977. But as Loxton and Prothero pointed out in, in their book, Abominable, Abominable Science, we should realize a few things about early, about the early 19th century when considering these earlier examples like the Stronze Beast. Mm-hmm. They write, quote, By 19th century standards, the ink was hardly dry on newspaper reports of the sea serpent sightings around Gloucester in 1817 when ichthyosaurs were shown to be reptiles in 1821. The first nearly complete plesiosaur skeleton was described in 1824 in a presentation before the Geological Society of London at the same meeting that announced the first dinosaur genus name, Megalosaurus. Almost immediately, naturalists made the connection to sea serpents. Hmm. So you've still got contemporary reports of sea serpent sightings. People are just discovering remains of these ancient, you know, gigantic reptiles. And so, you know, why not put two and two together? Maybe these these remains we're discovering are the sea serpents that people claim to see out on the waters. Yeah, and, and you had people like uh, the likes of geologist Robert uh, Bakewell uh, stating that he was inclined to believe that something like ichthyosaurs were likely alive today. Uh, he stated this in the 1833 textbook, Introduction to Geology. Well, I mean, it's not without precedent that an ancient marine species thought to have been extinct for for millions of years or so is actually discovered to still be alive today. Uh, One of the most commonly cited examples is the uh, lobe-finned fish, the coelacanth. Yes. Uh, But because one has been found to exist does not suggest that necessarily another will be found to exist. Right, that all prehistoric uh, marine life forms are on the table. Right. 
Uh, now, to, to put this time period in context, you know, the, the, the early 19th century, uh, to put it in context of a past episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, the bathysphere would not descend for another century. Yeah. Like the, so that's where we were, too, in our understanding of the ocean and what kind of animals live there. I think these were the – this might even been before. I forget when this happened, but the, we were talking about – in the bathysphere episode, how people tried to figure out what was deep in the ocean before mm-hmm. uh, we had, you know, anything that could go down there. And it, there were the days of the drag lines yeah. where you just drag a bucket along under, a sh- you know, behind a ship and see if you could pull anything up in it. It seems remarkably crude technology now. Yeah, just a death bucket to pull things <laughs> up and see what kind of flesh you managed to snare. And if it exploded by the time it got to the surface. Right. <laughs> All right, well, I guess we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss some more non-whale globsters from the Globster Hall of Fame. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. Now, one thing I wondered about is how long have people been reporting globsters? Like how far back does the does the uh, Sun article about the beach blob go? That's true because if certainly this would seem like the same kind of thing that would have occurred throughout human history. Of course it would. I mean nothing like – nothing that we know of changed suddenly in the 17th century to make – this stuff uh, start happening. So uh, let's take a look at old Pliny the Elder. Ah, this is kind of a late appearance for Pliny. Usually shows up earlier in an episode. That's true, yeah. Well, he's making a fashionable appearance. (laughs) Okay, so Pliny the Elder in his natural history is in a section talking about uh, Nereids, which are the sea nymphs or the ocean fairies or mermaids. And he writes about how the governor of Gaul once wrote a letter to Caesar Augustus reporting that a number of dead Nereids had washed up on shore in his territory and that their, quote, mournful song, moreover, when dying, has been heard a long way off by the coast dwellers. Uh, Later, he writes, During the rule of Tiberius, in an island off the coast of the province of Lyon, the receding ocean tide left more than 300 monsters at the same time of marvelous variety and size and an equal number on the coast of the saints and among the rest elephants and rams with only a white streak to resemble horns and also many nereids. And then later he writes about a, a couple of other monsters cast, uh, cast ashore. One story, quote, The skeleton of the monster to which Andromeda in the story was exposed was brought by Marcus Scaurus from the town of Jaffa in Judea and shown at Rome among the rest of the marvels during his his, uh, edile ship. It was 40 feet long, the height of the ribs exceeding the elephants of India, and the spine being one foot and six inches thick. Well, this all sounds exactly like what we've been talking about. It's like people finding strange bodies, strange flesh upon the shores and turning to mythological explanations or it just – I mean really it almost – it almost uh, – you know, uh, it's, it's almost unfair to say mythology in these cases because in some of these cases we're talking about just sort of unexpected understanding of – the more mysterious corners of the world. Well, yeah. I mean, this was a time for which mythology, I think, was in some ways kind of blended with history. Mm-hmm. might not always be clear to these people which of these myths were true and to what extent or were they based on actual historical events. So if you've got a story of your, your classic heroes like Perseus or whatever mm-hmm. and there's a sea monster in them – Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that story happened and maybe the sea monster is real. And this – oh, and you know what? I found some really big bones or a big old confusing pile of flesh on a beach. I bet it was that sea monster. All right. And then, of course, we have to we have to recognize that if these things are occurring throughout history, we have possibly the reverse situation occurring where – you have just a story about a, a sea monster and then you find these weird remains and you're like, well, this must be the form. And then that informs the myth. Yeah. Now, we disc- we've discussed creatures like this uh, on, on the show in the past, especially uh, tritons and nereids, uh, mermaids and whatnot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I believe we discussed the, the link between mermaid myths and the sightings of, of real life marine mammals and even occasionally uh, sightings of cephalopods. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder, too, if actual human remains ever factored into these observations as well. Oh, so like uh, like kind of bloated, dead human corpses washing up on a beach and people yeah. would say, ah, oh, these are the dead sea nymphs. Yeah, I mean, we've, we have looked at example. I, I looked around for specific discussion of this and I couldn't find anything. Maybe it's out there, though, and I just didn't happen upon it, but... You know, in discussing the kappa in Japanese folklore, we talked about how there are aspects of that myth that are based upon misinterpretations of uh, of, of bloated uh, bodies, the bodies of drowning victims. Oh, yeah. And so it doesn't seem that remote a possibility that one could misinterpret 
the the human remains found on, on a shore, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the remains of some fishing vessel or even a, a vessel in a time of war, provided that the, the the decay was substantial enough or unique enough. Yeah. I feel like we're developing an interesting parallel to like Adrian Mayer's geomythology where mm-hmm. the idea that maybe ancient peoples discovered dinosaur fossils or other kinds of fossilized uh, bone remains and developed the ideas of mythical beasts from them. Here I guess we're talking more like biomythology, like recently dead creatures and corpses found uh, or blobs found could give you ideas of the types of mythical monsters and creatures that inhabit the hidden part of the world. You know, in looking around at more like recent examples of supposed cryptozoological creatures, I did find at least one example where it's this weird bipedal looking creature. Uh, It appears hairless and has this kind of quasi-human appearance to it. Uh, And the the likely explanation is that it was a sloth. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. Uh, so, uh, So, you know, you could have a situation where somehow this animal is wound up in the water. It's dead. It's uh, lost its hair mm-hmm. and it is no longer r- quite recognizable as what it was and now occupies this kind of strange in-between space. Well, that makes me think about the New Jersey beach monster. I think you've probably seen pictures of this, which is what did they ultimately decide it likely was, like a raccoon or oh, something? Oh, yes, I did run across this one, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just this hairless, gross-looking little demon mammal uh, without, you know, it's smooth all over, dead on a beach in New Jersey and it, it – People now think, well, it's probably just a raccoon. (laughs) But regardless of what, you know, they may have made of of human remains on the beach, they were inevitably encountering chunks of blubber. They were encountering things like basking sharks, perhaps, uh, the remnants of uh, marine mammals such as manatees or dugongs. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of stuff there to to lend itself to monstrous interpretations. Yes. I'm so sorry. I've got to clarify I said New Jersey. It was the Montauk monster. I was wrong. Ah. It was a New York beach, Montauk. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry about that. New Jersey sea monster is an entirely different scenario. <laughs> By the way, nereids and tritons uh, play an important part in Transgenesis, the sci-fi podcast that uh, is publishing January 31st, uh, 2019. Uh, I hope everyone that listens to this show will check it out. You can find out more about it at transgenesis.show. That's right. Check it out. Now, Robert, are you ready to talk about a sea monster or wonderful beast? Uh, Do I get to choose between the two or are they one and the same? Uh, They are one and the same, but you will get to choose which one you think it is. All right. Let's do it. Okay. Now, so I came across evidence of a 17th century globster – uh, washed ashore in Ireland, and this is a glorious thing. It was. I, I, I'm going to make the case that this was pretty clearly a giant squid of the genus Architeuthis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written up in a pamphlet published in London in 1674, and the pamphlet is usually known by its opening line, which is, a true and perfect account of the miraculous sea monster or wonderful fish. Ha. The pamphlet continues, lately taken in Ireland, bigger than an ox, yet without legs, bones, fins, or scales, with two heads and ten horns of ten or eleven foot long, on eight of which horns there grew knobs about the bigness of a cloak button, in shape like crowns or coronets, to the number of a hundred on each horn, which were all to open and had rows of teeth within them. That does sound a lot like a giant squid. I think we're getting there. So the pamphlet tells a story about a man named James Stewart who was riding by the seaside in the west of Ireland and, quote, as the tide was coming in, perceived at a distance something of a strange bigness to make towards the shore. At first, he apprehended it might be some horse that might have been caught away with the violence of the tide and, having recovered himself, was now swimming to land. But approaching nearer on a closer view, he was infinitely surprised and amazed, not so much at the bigness which yet he found to exceed that of a horse which he first took it for in the body, as at the uncouth shape and a number of strange horns of great length, which rendered it not a little terrible to behold, insomuch that he durst not go near it, lest it should destroy both him and his horse. 
So we got the dramatic setup. Yes. <laughs> uh, Stewart goes off and gets help from a couple who live nearby, and they use ropes to drag it up on the beach. This they could do, though the account says that when they tried to touch the horns, quote, they found they're on shells like coronets with teeth within them, which got hold of their hands and fingers so that they were glad to let them go. Uh, so they come back the next day with a bigger company, and by then the beast was dead. And after that, they give a further description saying that the body was smooth and without scales or bones, and that it had two heads and two eyes, quote, of an oval form and of extraordinary bigness. Now, I think this has pretty much got to be a giant squid, especially mm -hmm. when talking when they talk about the size of the eyes, because the eyes of a giant squid are extremely remarkable or Organs. They've got a maximum diameter of around 25 centimeters or 10 inches. I've also seen slightly larger estimates of around 30 centimeters or about 12 inches. And the eyes of uh, the giant squid and their southern, southern ocean cousins, the colossal squid, are by far the biggest eyes in nature. Like they're often compared to the size of dinner plates. Uh, the one I like is that they're bigger in diameter than a standard basketball. Wow. They don't have irises or eyelids. Their eyes are not filled with jelly-like fluid like ours, but rather they're just filled with water. And so I've read that after the squid dies, their eyes just kind of like collapse like a deflated bag. Mm. Um, they're made for extreme light sensitivity in the pitch dark of the ocean more than 500 meters down. And I was reading an interesting piece in Scientific American from 2012 by Catherine Harmon about research on the purpose of those huge eyes because – why, why do they need eyes that big? Like the next biggest eyes in nature are the eyes of the swordfish and they're literally like a third of the size of the squid's eyes. These eyes are like 300% of the next biggest eyes in nature. Uh, the entire eye of a swordfish would fit inside the giant squid's pupil. Wow. On top of this, there's the fact that beyond a certain size, scientists have generally found really diminishing returns in eye bigness, where in most cases it just does not pay off at all for an animal to have an eye any larger than an orange. It consumes a lot of energy, it's very vulnerable, and it doesn't see much better than anything bigger than an orange. I mean, you think of some of the, of the animals that, have, that are known for having the most impressive eyesight. And the, the, the eyes the, aren't that big. The eyes aren't that big. You're, you're generally dealing with different varieties of bird. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So what are the squid using these triple huge eyes for? Well, a 2012 study found that while a squid's huge eye is not generally better at seeing, it's not just – it's not like better at seeing everything. It is better at seeing one extremely specific kind of visual information, which is subtle changes in contrast caused by large objects at a distance. Oh, I bet I know what that large object is. That's right. So imagine what, in fact, a squid might be most likely to be on the lookout for. Robert, you know the answer. The sperm whale. That's right. So imagine the body of a sperm whale diving through the black ocean 500 meters down. And as it travels, what the scientists were pointing out is that you know, as, as a sperm whale dives through the water, it will probably disturb and trigger the bioluminous the luminescence of tiny organisms here and there as it rushes through the water column. And most of the time, it does not pay to have foot-wide eyes, but the one exception is if you're going to be looking around for huge objects in the pelagic darkness. Then gigantic eyes are where it's at. And 500 meters down, the researchers figure that a squid can spot an approaching sperm whale at 120 meters, giving it a chance to escape. Of course, the whales don't really need sight to hunt in the dark because they use sound-based decolocation. This is amazing, and it, but it does make perfect sense, you know, because the, the sperm whale is the, uh, the, the giant squid eater par excellence. Yeah. Yeah, we love to think of the giant squid as like the ultimate crazy, scary ocean monster, but it's a prey animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, it preys on other things, but like, but a sperm whale, when sperm whales are found, sometimes they will have guts full of beaks, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because the squid, it, it's mostly got soft body parts that are easy to digest except for this one hard body part, the beak, which, uh, which you know, you open up a sperm whale's stomach and you, you may, it may just be beak city in there. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. So back to the sea monster or wonderful fish. Uh, So another thing the pamphlet says is on the cloak button-shaped crowns upon its horns, the pamphlet points out, quote, the resemblance of a pearl, which was to open and shut as a little mouth, and had within it a row of teeth, so that it should seem, beside the mouth of a little head, which we shall describe by and by, this monster received nourishment for its body at 800 several places, for that to number or thereabouts did the crowns on all eight horns amount. Uh, so they're saying they think that this this creature eats with its suckers if this is a squid. Uh, that seems to be incorrect. But mm-hmm. 
But they thought, oh, these look like tiny mouths. These are the, the mouths through which it eats. And they are kind of like tiny mouths. They're kind mm-hmm. of like little leech mouths all over the arms. A giant squid has eight arms and two feeding tentacles longer than the other arms, making the ten limbs, uh, ten limbs in total consistent with the report of the ten horns. And, of course, these cloak button-shaped crowns sound pretty much exactly like the toothed suckers lining the arms and the tentacle, uh, the feeding tentacle clubs of a giant squid. I've got an image here of what they look like, Robert. They're... Ooh, nice. Oh, real quick, I should also throw in that um, the tentacle arm distinction, that's another one that's easy to uh, to refer to the tentacles of a squid mm-hmm. when you really are referring to to the arms. Right. But you get into, especially when you get into like weird fiction and all, mm-hmm. the word arm is not nearly as uh, evocative as the tentacle. You don't want to have a mini-armed alien crawling out of a <laughs> dimensional gateway. No, you want a mini-tentacled monster. Well, it makes me wonder, uh, you know, when like you hear about these ancient monsters uh, that are described, say, in apocalyptic religious visions mm-hmm. as like an angel with ten arms or something. Uh, if we go with the cephalopod uh, analogy here, maybe those are things more like what people would call tentacles, not Ooh. necessarily human arms with elbows and hands. I like this, this reading of, of pretty much any, uh, certainly any biblical account. Just yeah. put in tentacles for arms or heads and you have, you have quite a, uh, a cool monster on your hands. But to be biologically rigorous, you are correct about that distinction. There, the, the squid has eight arms, which are covered in suckers all over, and then mm-hmm. it's got the two tentacles, which are longer and have clubs for grabbing prey and bringing it to the mouth. Those are the feeding tentacles. But let's come back to this uh, this globster here okay. because there was mention, to get biblical again, there was mention of horns. Right, yeah. Uh, so it's got these ten horns and then it says in the middle of the head between all these horns – uh, we're, we're assuming the horns are the arms and the mm-hmm. tentacles. The pamphlet says between all these horns, there was a smaller head, quote, in shape much like the head of a hawk ah. looking upward and had a strange mouth and two tongues in it. And here, too, no doubt it did take much of its nourishment. And in this they are correct because this sounds like the beak and mouth of a giant squid. Exactly right. They mention the resemblance to a hawk. Giant squid actually do have hooked bird-like beaks as we were talking about a minute ago. The sperm whale's stomach might be full of beaks. And inside this beak in a giant squid is a chewing mechanism, a grinding tooth-covered tongue called the radula. Ah, and here, here's a crazy thing uh, I, I did not remember learning about in the past. I'm, I may have. But so the mouth parts here have to process food down into tiny pieces before it's swallowed. And there's a very good reason for this because the squid – and I've, I've read about this, this in the context of the colossal squid. I believe it's also true of the giant squid. Uh, the squid has a torus or donut-shaped brain and the esophagus through which it swallows food – passes directly through the middle of that donut-shaped brain. So it Mm. goes through the donut hole. So if it tries to swallow a piece of food that is too large, it could literally press against its brain. Now imagine if when you ate, there was a choking risk, but the choking risk was not of suffocation, but a risk of mashing on your cerebral cortex. I'm imagining an alien race of cephalopod beings Mm -hmm. who, in order to have hallucinogenic experiences, they swallow polyhedral dice. So (laughs) they'll, you know, different different sizes will press on their brains, their donut brains in different Uh ways, produce different visions. It's called the god choking. Anyway, I know what you're thinking whenever a sea monster washes up dead on a beach. Uh, the, the next thing they should do is figure out what did it taste like, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so for experiment, the people boiled some of the flesh. But the longer it boiled, quote, the harder it became. It gave a very good scent as it boiled and seemed fat. But in boiling, the fat hardened. And no creature, though several at diverse times were tried, would eat a bit of it or so much as taste of it. They don't say what creatures they tried, though. I mean, did they offer it to a cow, to a dog? What? I mean, a dog, I'm sure, would be up for anything. Did they offer it to a shark? I mean, (laughs) there's no clues to go on here. But anyway, I mean, this just reminds me of Robert. Have you ever tried to cook calamari? I don't think I've ever tried to cook it myself. I've only ever had it in restaurants. Well, I don't know if what is true of smaller squid is also true of uh, larger squid, but food-sized squid, which is what calamari is, becomes overcooked and rubbery extremely easily. Mm. Boiling it can make it 
tough as rubber. Uh, you have to be very careful to cook it very quickly uh, and, you know, get it out of the heat before it gets overcooked and gets oh, super chewy. So this would, be, this would be why you tend to encounter it in kind of like a flash-fried yeah. uh, fashion. And I bet you've had – you may have like ordered calamari at a not-so-great restaurant and it was really tough and chewy. Pro- yeah, probably so. But it also probably explains why – it is hard to find calamari that is not fried mm-hmm. and, and, of course, not sushi on the other side. Yeah. Like there used to be a, a Vietnamese place in Atlanta. This was ages ago that uh, that I, I liked going to because they had like a calamari salad and the calamari was uh, – uh, it was baked or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so some of the – I forget how it was actually prepared. It's been so long. But it was like one of the few places where it's like, oh, it's cooked calamari and it's not fried. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean I think another way you can get tender calamari – I'm not – positive about this. But I think the other way is to like go the low and slow method, mm. you know, like oh, yeah. low temperature, long, long period of time. But I haven't tried it myself. But anyway, I've got to mention there is also an addendum to the pamphlet at the end, which does it's been I would say I'm impressed with this 17th century pamphlet. It sounds based on my reading like it's a very like kind of thorough empirical description that they mm-hmm. do a pretty good job of giving you an idea of what this thing was. Uh, it's not too sensational, but then it gets to the addendum at the end. Quote We might now divert the reader a little and tell him that some zealots hearing of a strange creature with several heads, ten horns, and more than triple crowns took it for the apocalyptical beast and fancied the Pope was landed in person. Uh. And it just like us humans, we can't even have a nice pamphlet about a dead blob of sea monster flesh without bringing religion and politics into it, getting all your Protestant grievances out against the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it reminds me of the example uh, from uh, from, like this month's headlines that we referred in the first one where uh, some strange blob was found and and they compared it to the, the current U.S. president. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, pre- I, I just want pure enjoyment of sea monsters without having to think <laughs> about politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems that would you be, uh, there should be plenty to talk about without bringing politics and religion into it. Because here, behold, is a mystery of the deep cast upon the shore for our perusal. Now, I guess one thing we should say is that this is a globster by by – virtue of its time in history. Because this wouldn't be classed as a globster today. I think if this thing washed ashore, people would immediately now be able to recognize that it was almost undoubtedly a large species of squid. Right. Much like the the recent Australian case we mentioned in last episode where people saw it and they're like, hey, it's a giant squid. Uh Let's get the camera. Let's put this sucker on Instagram. Well, yeah. I mean, those things are rare enough on their Mm – even though we know what they are and they're just animals, they are in a way like the modern equivalent of a sea monster. You've seen something rare and amazing. It's exotic. Yeah. Now, for sperm whales though, uh, maybe not so. (laughs) Right. They're like, yeah, I had had six of them uh, yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Actually, uh, you know, that's one thing I'm not uh, clear on or I don't remember from past research is just how often uh, a sperm whale is eating a giant squid. I don't know either. Hmm. Uh, one thing I did come across in this research is um, that a colossal squid has an extreme – colossal squid is the southern ocean, like Antarctic equivalent of a giant squid. They're around the same length, though a colossal squid has a fatter, more robust body. Mm-hmm. And uh, the colossal squid apparently has a very, very slow metabolism. I guess it lives in deep, cold water. And despite its gigantic size, it really doesn't have to eat very much at all because it just doesn't move or do very much. But either way, I mean, I guess these things uh, – delicious to sperm whales. I, I wonder, like, do sperm whales get upset stomachs when they have too many squid and they get – do they get, like, beak belly? One Well, one would think so. But then again, if these are, uh, these are indeed a, a, a primary part of their diet, they've, they've had time to get used to it. One wonders. Maybe someday if we create the machine that allows us to talk to whales, we will – that will be the first thing we ask them. Right. Or maybe it's just simply the fact that – sure, you're going to pay for it. You're going to get beak belly, but it just tastes so good. It's, in, <laughs> it's indeed like uh, when, a, when a human goes to a restaurant and eats an entire appetizer of fried calamari uh-huh. all by themselves. It was a terrible choice. They're going to pay for it later, uh, but it sure was delicious uh, while they were eating it. Mm-hmm. Squid, the awesome blossom of the sea. (laughs) All right. So there you have it. Globsters, a two-parter here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Again, we didn't cover all the globsters that have occurred and been uh, um, uh, reported by humans wandering the beaches of the world. We haven't discussed 
anywhere near all the amazing creatures that live in the sh- in the the ocean and sometimes wind up washed on the shore. But we we got to cover a lot of ground. I think there are some examples we didn't get to that are neither confirmed to be parts of whales nor are they like basking sharks or squid like we talked about today, but some other kind of blobby mass that we don't quite know what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll come back to that in the future. If people really want to hear more blobs, they love blobs, you know, we, we can always we can always return to blob Blob Island. We'll do Globster 3D. That'll be the third one because it'll be in 3D. You can't have a monster movie that's number three without having some 3D glasses. That's good. I like it. Whether whether it's uh, whether it's whale body parts, whether it's a squid, whether it's a basking shark or, shark or whether it's the Pope, it's all going to look good in 3D. You're <laughs> going to be glad you came and you paid the extra dollar for the glasses. All right. Well, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. You can find them wherever it is you get the podcast, wherever you get any of your podcasts. You can also check us out at our homepage, our mothership, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That has links out to our various uh, social media accounts. Uh, for instance, you can go check out our, our uh, group on Facebook. It's called uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. It's a fun place to interact with other listeners as well as with us. Uh, likewise, if you want to support the show, click on that link at the top of the page for the merchandise store. You can get some cool shirts, some cool stickers. It's a cool way to support the show. And if you want to support the show without spending a dime, you can just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And don't forget about Invention, uh, which is already out. We have multiple episodes. Look up Invention uh, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. That comes out every Monday. And then looking just uh, a week ahead, uh, be sure to subscribe to and check out Transgenesis, a science fiction, a fiction, scripted fiction podcast uh, that I have coming out that involves uh, all sorts of uh, deep water horrors and also a cameo from Joe McCormick. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 